All right, good morning. Let's get started here this morning. I want to talk about Thanksgiving, but we're going to do so through a story in the Old Testament. So turn to 2 Kings chapter 7 in your second scroll of the Kings. You can be glad you don't have to carry scrolls around. Anybody ever been to the Museum of the Bible? Anybody? Oh, there we go. There we go. Oh, um, anyone ever seen any ancient scrolls? They can be pretty big and bulky, especially if they're fragile now and don't wrap real tight. But uh, So we're in the second scroll of this record of the Kings, 2 Kings 7. We're jumping into the new ministry of Elisha. Elijah, the prophet, has been taken off the scene, you remember, in a pretty dramatic display. And now Elisha, having received that double portion of Elijah's kind of ministry power, uh, has already demonstrated numerous uh, works of God, miracles. And yet, uh, we kind of hit a hard season for the land of Israel, especially the northern tribes of Samaria. The Syrians have invaded Samaria, and that's kind of where our story is unfolding. Elisha is in Samaria. The Syrians have besieged the city. Now, we read about a siege, and because it's not really modern technique or uh, plans for warfare, we may not fully understand what goes on there. Actually, a, a siege would almost begin to violate the principles of just war. If you've studied, you know, the, the morality of how to conduct war, you generally would not be in favor of starving out citizens. Um, so when we look at our story and read, uh, let's, let's see, turn back to chapter 6, actually, in verse 24, and we read, Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it, until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and a fourth part of a cob of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Uh, trying to help us realize that like the skull of a donkey, maybe with just the tiniest bit of decaying sinew or flesh on it would be sold for the hopes of boiling that, making some kind of broth that would actually nourish. Uh, dove's dung is being sold. So if somebody could even find a bird and get their droppings, they were actually selling that as food. Uh, so you get, to be, you get to understand this isn't just like we're pinching pennies. No, you'd be eating your pennies if you had them. It's, it's that bad. Um, so a siege would surround a city. It would seek to cut off all sustenance, water, food, anything they could do. Uh, and generally, the army that was invading and besieging a city would still have access to the food from the countryside and the water perhaps flowing nearby. Or in their wealth, they had supplies they needed, and they would literally just starve out cities uh, until there was nothing left or they surrendered, and by that point, they would be easily overcome. At times, uh, when cities were known for having massive walls, uh, they would just begin to build 
earthen ramps that would allow them to just go right up over the walls. There's a famous fortress many miles south of Jerusalem in the desert, Masada. You may have seen the old black and white movie. Uh, It was on a plateau, hundreds and hundreds of feet in the air. Uh, And the Romans, when they invaded Israel and were taking over uh, and would eventually destroy the temple, uh, they used slaves to build a massive ramp. Uh, It took months and months, if not years, but literally, you know, wheelbarrow load after slave backpack load of dirt to build a ramp that ended up being, you know, three quarters of a mile or some massive distance to slope up this entire plateau uh, and eventually then get up there to overtake uh, what they thought would be the opposition. But as that ramp got closer and closer, the Jews on Masada uh, committed a a mass murder-suicide uh, and there was nobody left for the Romans to conquer. Uh, you can still visit that today. How many, anyone been to Masada up on the mountaintop? Yeah, I was up there and a few of you have been. So a siege is, is a long, hard death. And a lot of people would commit suicide and a lot would starve to death. Um, if you look in our, t- well, we'll get there in our text in a moment and see a little bit more about the, the consequences of that siege. So the Syrians from the north have come down into the northern tribes and they are besieging the city of Samaria. And we begin our story then uh, in those circumstances in chapter 7. Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. So Elijah's now making a prophecy that, well, before the day before, they're selling the waste of a bird for actual food. Uh, he's saying tomorrow a, a huge sack of fine flour is going to be really cheap, and barley will be even cheaper. So he's predicting enormous prosperity, and he's setting a date tomorrow. And you remember... You can judge a prophet by the truth of their prophecy. Uh, And God would tell his people that if their prophecy doesn't come true, they're a false prophet and could face even the death penalty in Israel's day. Verse 2, in response to Elijah's prophecy, then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, that's Elisha. You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Now, there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. And they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, Let us enter the city. The famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now, come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians, If they spare our lives, we shall live, and if they kill us, we shall but die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites, and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, 
leaving the camp as it was, and fled for their lives. When these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, We came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there, nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents as they were. Then the gatekeepers called out, and it was told within the king's household. And the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking, when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. And one of the servants said, Let some men take five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who are left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Let us send and see. So they took two horsemen, and the king sent them after the army of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. So they went after them as far as the Jordan, and behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a sea of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. And the people trampled him in the gate so that he died, as the man of God had said when the king came down to him, for when the man of God had said to the king, two seahs of barley shall be sold for a shekel and a seah of fine flour for a shekel about this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria, the captain had answered the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he had said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gate and he died. I want us to think on Thanksgiving this morning with this story in our mind. Perhaps it's been a while since you've read it, um, but I want us to think through some of the warnings that were given here, some, some threats, we could call it, to Thanksgiving. Things that could, on a different scale than this, be a part of our lives that could threaten our giving of thanks. Um, so we need to be careful. We need to be on guard. We need to learn from this story. Uh, remembering these people are desperate because of this siege uh, makes the story make sense. Uh, this trampling to get out of the city and to get food. They're probably not real concerned about gold and silver. Uh, that's not going to sustain life, but they are after this surplus of food. Uh, you know, years ago when Black Fridays were not powered by search engines online, and you actually had to go to the stores, there were multiple cases of people breaking down doors. There was a, 
a, a big guy at Walmart. I mean, the guy was like 6'4", and he was standing at one of those doors one year back in the early 2000s when the mob broke through the doors to get to Black Friday sales and trampled the guy to death. I remember looking through the ads of that Walmart that week and seeing, you know, Incredible Hulk video, Wrangler jeans, TVs. And that was the stuff people thought was worth trampling someone to death. It's a fascinating story of, of how a mob works, but when driven by desperate need, not just perceived need at Walmart, uh, these, these people, uh, it, was a, it was a rampage. Uh, it's not a pretty picture. Uh, it's no surprise at all that this man was trampled to death. When you think about it, you see how desperate these people were back in chapter 6, verse 25. The great famine in Samaria, as they besieged it, the donkey's head and the dung are being sold for food. Verse 26, now as the king of Israel was passing by on a wall, a woman cried out to him saying, help my lord, O king. And he said, if the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? Basically, he's, he's hearing this cry for help and he's saying, listen, uh, if the Lord's not giving us food, what am I supposed to do? I can't give you anything from the threshing floor. There's nothing there. There's nothing in the wine press. There's nothing to drink. So the king's a bit frustrated because this is such a mess and people are looking to him to help and it's not happening. And the king asked her, what is your trouble? And she answered, this woman said to me, give your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day I said to her, give us your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. Well, the king kind of becomes undone. He tears his clothes. He's like, this is, this is desperation beyond desperation. This is almost unheard of, uh, cannibalizing your own children. Uh, now, many of them may have already died. We don't know exactly what's taking place, but that's, that's desperation. Some of you are alive. You remember the uh, rugby team that crashed in the Andes Mountains in South America. It was the early 70s. Um, it was a white plane crashed in the snowy mountains, and search planes would fly over, and they couldn't see it. Um, these people ended up surviving for 72 days, uh, but the ones that did survive ended up having to eat the passengers that had died or died over those weeks and were frozen in the snow. And they were originally going to keep that a secret because it just seems too hard to even fathom eating human flesh, uh, but eventually that got out and it was kind of this huge story and not only a story of survival on a mountain, but the ethics of all that kind of stuff. And, uh, but it was a real event that happened really in, in our lifetime. So we see the desperation. If people are eating their loved ones who have starved to death, perhaps, y- your mind's in a place that most of us really can't understand. Uh, they're desperate. So to hear an announcement of food for the taking, leads to this mob storming out of the gates, uh, trampling this one who was in charge of keeping the gate. Uh, And now we're left with this odd story. And 
what do we learn from it that would protect us in our giving of thanks uh, from these threats that we see here? You may have heard it said, based on this story, that Christianity or evangelism is simply poor beggars telling other poor beggars where to find bread. I have no idea who originally said it. I looked it up this week, and pretty much anybody posts online their favorite speaker and said, he's the one who said it. Um, You know, dated 2019, so-and-so said this. Well, then you can just see the next search, 2013, so-and-so said this. And, you know, you go all the way back to the Reformation and beyond. So I I don't know. Maybe if you have time, you can figure that out. Um, But that familiar expression, I know I've heard it for many, many years, Uh, Poor beggars telling other poor beggars where to find bread. Um, It'd be like saying we're sinners saved by grace and we're telling other sinners where, you know, to find the good news. Uh, That's what our story's about. That's the focus. These beggars find the wealth of the abandoned camps of the Syrians and they realize they should share this good news. And when that news is shared, there's the stampede and the prophet's words are proven true. Uh, that food is in abundance and massive amounts of it could be bought for pocket change um, in contrast to just 24 hours before in such desperation as we see in chapter 6. So from this story, let me give you three threats to Thanksgiving. And I, I, I don't think we have to think we exemplify in the worst way all of these threats that we'll see. But I think we'll be able to recognize that at times these charges could be leveled at us. Uh, We have our moments and we need to repent of them and recognize we are a people that needs to be thankful. Not only because we can count our material blessings and know that compared to most nations of the world and many people even in our nation, we are blessed abundantly. But even if that weren't the case and we were on the low end of the, the scale in our nation or around the world, we would still have this blessed hope of a Savior uh, who works all things for our good, who gives us what we need to serve him for as long as he has us on this earth. Three threats to thanksgiving. The first I see in, uh, in the ideas of verse 8. When the lepers come to the edge of the camp, they go into the tents, they eat and they drink, Then they carry off silver and gold and clothing, and they go and stash that away. Then they come back and get more, carry that off and stash it away. I'm not saying they they were wrong, though they were getting there, because they acknowledge if we don't do something different, we're doing wrong. The first threat to Thanksgiving is we become selfish about good stuff. We become selfish about good stuff. Our homes, you know, our, our food, our time, our vacations. Uh, as younger kids, it's their toys. Um, we have good stuff. It's fun. It's, it's enjoyable. And we're not in the realm of sinful. We're, we're in this realm of God's given us all things freely to enjoy. We're stewards of our time and our money. So if you have money to buy, you know, a nice television and watch your favorite football team. There's nothing sinful in that if it finds its place in a well-ordered Christian life. 
But at times, with the good stuff we amass, we get a little stingy with it. We get selfish with it. We start hoarding it. We start socking it away. We're the only one that ever sits down and enjoys the snacks and the big TV. Instead of saying, hey, I'm going to have some guys over and we'll watch this. Because in the big picture, watching a ball game doesn't do much to advance the kingdom. But even the slightest bit of camaraderie or relationship building could be useful in building the kingdom. That doesn't mean husbands can tell their wives, we're having guys over to watch football all the time because that's advancing the kingdom. Well, you know, we can't abuse uh, the application here. But the idea is it, it's, it's taking what I love, my good stuff, and, and making it available to anybody. Uh, so, so open your home and, and empty your pantry for people. Not foolishly using up everything you have and burning through your money and such, but in ways that would be reasonable and spirit-led, we become a sharing people instead of a selfish people. Thanksgiving is threatened when instead of giving thanks for all we have, we're, we're keeping guard on all we have. And, and kids do this. My kids have done this. Wait, who's coming over? How many are coming over? Okay, getting the remote control car and locking it in the closet. Oh, my Legos are out. Oh, I'm putting them away. I don't want to lose the Legos. Some kid, you know, eating them all and spitting them back out or something. Um, so they, like, hide the good toys. And generally we say, well, that's, that's fine. There are a few things that you can try to keep special, but we also need to have stuff that we share um, because we don't want them to think I have good stuff and it's for me only. That's um, why we always liked having some family Christmas gifts. Like somebody might open a board game, but guess what? Two to eight players. That just became everyone's game uh, because it's we don't want to condition our children to become selfishly guarding their stuff. Rather, we want them joyfully sharing their stuff. So think about how you can be more giving and less guarding this Thanksgiving season. As you give thanks for the stuff you have, for the things you enjoy, Think about how you could share that. Maybe you have more time than some others do, and that becomes a shared gift because you help someone else with their task and now they have a little bit more free time. Your neighbor's out putting up their lights and you go help them and and you're giving of time rather than guarding it and thinking I have to have this for my time and I already got my work done so now I can rest. At some point we like the beggars might have to say we're not doing right. We were on this track of working hard and enjoying the harvest but we never got to that Thanksgiving pilgrim feast of sharing the harvest. We never said, this all came from God, so you can have some too. Um, So there's a threat to Thanksgiving that shows up in this selfishness. We become selfish about our good stuff. And again, it's not a problem with the stuff. That's, That's not our topic for study today. That could be a topic for study. We all know. First... Timothy warns that those who are rich are walking through a minefield. They have to constantly be thinking of the stewardship of God's stuff, not it's mine. 
but that's kind of another study. Right now, I want us thinking, God's given us this stuff, and whether you have a little or a lot, are you guarding your stuff or are you giving of your stuff? Let's not be selfish about good stuff. Verse 9, they said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come. Let us go and tell the king's household. Building on our act study and Dave's lessons in the last weeks on applying that to tell someone, I think a danger this Thanksgiving, which is a season where, where everyone in this room will mentally and probably verbally be giving thanks to God for what he has done for us, for all the good gifts we've received. And James would say, beginning with the good gift of sending his son, in a season where we'll be talking about that in-house, there's a threat to that thanksgiving spirit, and it's that we would be silent about good news. There's a threat about being selfish about our good stuff. But the second threat comes when we realize we might be tempted to be silent about good news. Beginning now and really heading all the way through the new year, it's almost like our nation, as secular as it has become, uh, is still at least giving a nod to uh, the season of Christmas. And it's religious roots. Um, Now, I don't know if that'll last. There are a lot of other things that I thought would last longer, like the common sense of you're male or female. And if that's collapsed, I have no expectation that our culture will long permit public Christmas definition as Jesus was born. Um, But as long as it's there, and it probably will be as a remnant for a long time at the grassroots level, we should capitalize on the language of a son is given and a child is born and Christmas cards and displays and the the spray paint and all the store windows with a star and a manger scene. We should know those are all open doors that we walk right through uh, to talk about That slogan you'll see as well, the reason for the season. And so let's beware that this Thanksgiving, which I count as November, December, that this Thanksgiving, we're not silent about good news. These beggars were talking about good news, and it was the good news of food for the belly, uh, sustenance that way. But Jesus would use this very illustration, not the story, but the illustration of food and say, I'm the bread of life. Or to the woman at the well, I'm the water. If you would drink of the water that I give, you'll never thirst again. That's good news, and she knew it. Where do you get that water? What are you talking about? I'll take some of that. We have good news to share, and it's the good news of Jesus, the bread of life, that when we partake of that bread, we never hunger again. That's why every time we take the Lord's Supper, it's that word partake. It's the picture of bread being broken, and here you have a piece, and I take it, and I partake of it. I believe that that's what I need. He satisfies. His work makes me righteous. His death 
declares me forgiven. His resurrection says I can live forever in heaven. So I partake of that. I choose to believe that. And having done so, we can't be silent about the good news. There's a passive voice even in taking the elements of the Lord's Supper. Because it says, for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. There's a voice in that. The action of saying, I'm with Christ by eating and drinking. I partake by faith. You're announcing Jesus satisfies. You proclaim his death till he comes. So we cannot be silent about good news. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Pretty common verse. But it's, it's, it's the definition of the celebration of the coming weeks. So capitalize on that good news. Build on that. Don't be silent. Perhaps we need to say, in light of recent months of study through Acts, the equip hour, and now from this text, we too, like those beggars, might have to acknowledge we are not doing right. Oh, we're getting some of it right. We'll give thanks at the Thanksgiving meal with our family and friends. And maybe we'll have a little bit in our minds to remember to give thanks for everything that's going on and the stuff we have and the church family and friends. And we'll be thankful. So maybe we can check off the, okay, I've, I'm conquering selfishness. I'm fighting that off. But are we being silent about good news? But then our story has this other twist in it. There's the little question about whether this was a trap. The Syrians kind of create this scene to make it look like we should all rush out of the city, and when we do, they're going to take us all alive. That's what they wanted. They wanted prisoners to take back as slaves, so they don't really need to kill everybody off, and the Israelites know that, so they're hesitant to go out. Um, But eventually, they're too desperate Uh, They even say as much there. Um, Verse 13, let some men take five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who are left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. We're going to die anyway. So if it's a trap, it's a trap. Uh, Let's go explore and see what happens. It can't get any worse. And so they go out there and they realize the army's gone. They, they, they follow them far off, and still, there's just a, a wake of stuff left behind. And so the people went out, and that's an understatement. They, you know, it's a stampede, and they plundered the camp. And then the story ends where it began. Our text in the sermon will kind of do that this morning as well. And so this becomes kind of the emphasis of the text. If, if there's bookends, and we'll talk about that this morning in the sermon, that, that's an interpretive tool to help us understand. If the story started this way, and it may have just sounded like the beginning of the story, Elisha makes this prophecy, tomorrow stuff, food's going to be a lot cheaper. And when the guy says, yeah, right, that'll never happen, even if God opened the windows of heaven, this couldn't happen. And he says, you'll see it, but you won't take of it. That could just 
be the way the story goes, but when we get to the end of the story and we revisit that exact scenario, we now have these bookends that are showing us, all right, if you miss anything else, don't miss how the start and finish went. That's a big part of the story. And so we have it again at verse 17. There's this captain, yes, on whom the king leaned. He's the main guy. But he's trampled at the gate and he dies. And we realize that this was in fulfillment of what the prophet had said. And then it recounts it for us. When the prophet predicted cheap food by tomorrow, this guy said, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? In other words, that's not possible. God himself couldn't fix this problem. It's so bad, he's saying. If the windows of heaven were open and out came the bounty, it still wouldn't work. Could these things be that it would be that affordable and that bountiful? And the prophet had told him, you will see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it was. The good news exploded in this mob stampede, and you can hear the people celebrating and some maybe already coming back, and yet as this crowd's going out, he's, he's heard the good news, he's seen it unfold, but then sadly, he's being trampled, he, you know, and you can imagine how it happens. You've seen it in crowds, you hear of it still in big religious gatherings of millions of people in India over there and some of their celebrations, and once that mob starts to shift a little bit, and somebody loses their foot. It's, it's just a machine. And this guy is trampled to death and he dies. We were told this was going to happen. And then it happens. And these bookends give us the greatest threat to Thanksgiving, at least as it unfolds in this text. We've seen the threat of being selfish about good stuff. We've seen the threat of being silent about good news. And now the threat that unfolds is being skeptical about a good God. The windows of heaven could open. What good would that do? You read some of the Psalms at times, and and you might think they're borrowing from this man's skepticism. Because in their weariness, in the hardships of life, there's the doubts that creep into our minds and we start to wonder, what's the use? The psalmist at one point said, I would have, I would have died. I would have fainted, he said, but it would have been, I would have just worn right out if I had not believed that I would see the goodness of God. There, there are people that will gather with us this morning that are dreading this week. Because thanksgiving to some seems so easy. And to them, it's going to be count your blessings, name them one by one, and they, they labor hard to get that first one. They're just so tired and weary of the hardships of life. They've done their fair share of groaning and more. And this threat to our thanksgiving, a threat that might keep us from entering into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. The threat is we're skeptical about the goodness of God. 
It's the oldest trick in the devil's bag to get us to think that God isn't good. That we don't have much to be thankful for. In the Garden of Eden, enjoying the bounty of the garden with only one tree that they weren't supposed to eat of. And all the devil had to do was come and suggest that God wasn't good by holding back that one tree. He didn't even have to attack all the good trees and all the bounty around them. All he had to do was focus their attention on that one tree and suggest that God was not good. And Adam and Eve both felt welling up within them the sense that, well, then I will have to take care of myself. I'll have to make sure it gets done. And they threw off the benevolent lordship of God to try to rule themselves and provide for themselves. And we see how that unfolds. It wasn't long before their Thanksgiving table was missing a seat because their own son killed their other son. And they realized, you know what? Being self-governed isn't a good thing. Bowing to the lordship of Jesus Christ is the beginning of true thanksgiving. It's where, we, it's where we declare our faith in the goodness of God who says, my love is demonstrated by the giving of Jesus to die for your sins. I'm not saying we'll never have doubts. We'll never be skeptical. But true thanksgiving begins with our faith in Jesus to save us from our sin. And now, year by year at Thanksgiving and month by month and probably day by day and sometimes hours by hours in the day, we need to fight off the doubts about the goodness of God. This man just couldn't believe that God could or would provide in such a way. And his life stands as this monument now to unbelief, to skepticism. But we have to ask ourselves, how are, how are we doing in our faith in the goodness of God? It's not just I'm giving thanks this season because of this and because of this and because of this and because of this. Yes, Count your many blessings, name them one by one, but follow through there and get to the rest. It will surprise you what the Lord has done. But even that's kind of just part of the story. That's giving thanks by looking around and seeing where God has been good, but I think we need to not only look at our stuff and name those blessings, but we need to come to the word and and put aside all doubt with the truth of what God has said about himself, that he is good. Or spend time in Psalm 136 this week, where every verse of the 20 or 30 verses ends with, for his mercy endures forever, or his steadfast love endures forever. Oh, there's a story that's told there, but every verse ends with that phrase, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. When you read that psalm, I think we did it last year at the Thanksgiving and praise service. 
it's almost hard to do. It's almost hard to not just skip over for the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever and just read the first part because I know what it says at the end of the verse after five or six of them. But I think it's there in that song format because there are times when our minds just, we keep entertaining the thought that maybe God isn't good to me or not as good as he is to that person. Look at their family. Look at their marriage. Look at his job. Look at their property. Look at the vacations they take. And and it just seems like there's always a comparison no matter what I have. I could count my blessings and name them all. And then I look at someone else and I think, oh, they have it even better. And there's the devil again with Eden's trick and trap. Is God good? Are we skeptical about a good God? Have we made war against that doubt that creeps in, the comparison, the discontent that arises in us? Life is hard and their life looks easy. Why am I dealing with chronic illness and they do whatever they want? Why can they have children and we can't? Why are my parents gone and that family is gathering for Thanksgiving? Why is my child disabled, autistic, and and their kids racking up all the trophies in school and academics and sports? All, All these avenues are paths that can lead us to a loving father who knows what's best, and is giving us exactly what we need for his glory, and asking us to trust him even when we don't understand, believing grace is sufficient, or all those same paths can be the path to discontent, to fear, to anger, doubt, and eventually to unbelief. You see, God's people, they, they walked out of Egypt pretty pumped. Not only were they done with slavery, done with making their own bricks, but they had been told to ask the Egyptians for all their wealth. And the language was, they plundered them. But it was voluntary. The Egyptians were like, take it and go. So they come out of Egypt wealthy, happy, and enjoying the walk to the promised land. And they, they, they didn't even make it a month before they were saying things like, why has God brought us out here after all? That was the dumbest thing ever. He's brought us out here to kill us. Oh, that we were back in Egypt where we had it so good. Not only had they believed the lie of the devil, but they had taken that lie and rewritten history. Watch the news, and you'll see it happen all the time. But that's the path that we're in danger of walking if we don't war against this skepticism, if we don't stop entertaining the thought that maybe God isn't good after all. We end in that blatant unbelief and accusation of, you did this, you took from me, you didn't give me, you're not fair. And clearly we can see how that spirit is a threat 
to thanksgiving. We have to beware this season, and really every season, that we're not selfish about good stuff. I hope you have enough bounty to enjoy a good meal. Maybe a few family or friends gathering. If you don't have any great plan, you know, create something. Go talk to a neighbor. Find somebody who's, who's in the same situation. Uh, go up and ask somebody at church, can I join your family? You can come to our gathering. Why are we selfish with good stuff? Honestly, there are some here that might think, well, we already have our plan and it's like all set. So if we added someone else, it would mess it up. Well, God help you to find some kind of enjoyment in your thanksgiving because that's selfish with good stuff. We've got to fight against that. We can't be silent about the good news. Find yourself saying this week, even if you're standing in a long line at Aldi, if you dare go to Aldi, I'm still bitter at Aldi because I thought in the early days they kept your quarter when you put it in the shopping cart. Never forgiven them for that misunderstanding. If you're getting a can of cranberry sauce and waiting in line, tell somebody you're thankful for cranberries that God made. Tell them you're thankful you got a big turkey. You know, yeah, yeah, my, my family's coming over. I'm glad my, my kids are coming back. God's been really good. And, and get there. Say something. Don't be silent about the good news. Who knows what they'll say in response to you saying God's behind this whole Thanksgiving season. Don't be silent. And above all, hear, hear the warning of a pretty dramatic story that we can kind of see in our minds. We've seen enough riots on TV to, to picture something of what happened here. And remember, skepticism and doubt about God's goodness never ends well. Beware of doubt. Teach your kids this, you know, they're going to complain because, you know, they didn't like the gravy, it was too lumpy or something, uh, and, and, and just gently steer them away from that kind of complaint that, that makes a case against the goodness of God. And certainly as adults, don't complain about lumpy potatoes and gravy, uh, but, but deeper than that, model, model this true thanksgiving that understands how, how fragile it is, that it can easily be overcome by selfishness, by silence, by skepticism. Heavenly Father, help us. We probably think of ourselves as pretty thankful people, but maybe we have some room to grow. From your word, from this story of beggars helping other beggars to find bread, would you teach us? Would you help us even this week to get something right in this matter of thanksgiving, to at least avoid these three traps? May our voice be loud and clear that you are the giver of good gifts, beginning with your son Jesus, given for our eternal salvation. Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.